like to welcome you to this LSE public lecture on China's uh, emerging financial markets. I think some of you will know that actually the LSEs have China connections for a very long time, uh, but in recent years the pace of China activity has really picked up. Uh, for one thing, we now have lots and lots of outstanding students from mainland China. I think a few of them may be in the room uh, tonight. There may be some non-outstanding ones as well, but the ones I've mentioned <laughs> pretty nice, seem pretty smart, not bad. Um, the second thing is that we have a lot of quite serious and sustained collaborations with some uh, wonderful uh, colleagues at Chinese institutions, including Beijing University, Tsinghua, Fudan, Nanjing, and so on. So these are kind of serious research and teaching collaborations. A recent development is that now the LSE is hosting the Confucius Institute for Business, London, CIBL, I'm sure you'll remember that one, CIBL, Confucius Institute for Business London, which in the coming uh, months and years is going to get engaged in a program of teaching uh, Chinese language and culture, in particular for people who have uh, business interests. Anyway, so lots of China-connected stuff happening, which is very exciting. And a lot of this has happened during the time when the director uh, of, of the LSE, I suppose for the first time, is someone who himself has a serious and sustained interest in things uh, Chinese. I mean, everybody in the world is interested now in the Chinese economy, uh, but how Davies has actually been directly involved on different levels, and in particular in regulatory reform, serving as, as an advisor for both uh, banking and securities uh, regu regulation in uh, China. So uh, that's just to say that when Howard talks about these things, we can listen because he really knows what he's talking about. Howard Davies. Thank you. Well, thank you, Charles, and good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Um, this is uh, the latest in a series of lectures I've given. This is the fourth of them since I've been here at the school looking at the progress of uh, financial reform in China. Uh, it's from a very practical, institution-oriented basis rather than a theoretical basis. Charles uh, himself just told me, I asked him what he was working on at the moment, and he said he was working on a book on logic and emotion in the Chinese economic life. Well, <laughs> there won't be any emotion here uh, tonight. There may be a little bit of logic, I hope, uh, but nothing quite so formal uh, or theoretical. Uh, as Charles mentioned, I sit on the international advisory boards of both the China Banking Regulatory Commission, the CBRC, and the China Securities Regulatory Commission, CSRC, working with uh, Yu Ming Kang in the, in the first uh, and Chairman Sheng Fulin in the second. Uh, but I think I ought to say right at the start uh, that what I say does not reflect the official views uh, of the CBRC or the CSRC. Uh, though I think it probably isn't uh, very far away from them in many cases. As Charles mentioned, we do have uh, strong links with China at the moment. Um, and I was last in uh, Beijing in both June uh, and then in July. And in July, I went to call on the Vice Minister Zhang of the Chinese Foreign Ministry, who is in charge of China's relations with Europe and North America, and who is also an LSE alumnus. And he uh, reported to me that 
the foreign minister, Jiang Jiechi, who, who was uh, in America actually at the time, uh, is now also, as many of you will know, an LSE alumnus from the 1970s. And uh, Vice Minister Zhang said to me with a smile that he was now, it had been made very clear to him that the top priority for the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs was China's relations with the LSE. <laughs> and, and in fact, uh, I thought this was uh, just a joke, uh, but it uh, turned out not to be. Um, and uh, the Chinese are now about to send uh, diplomats uh, here on a rotating basis to work with our international relations people. However, uh, that's not the subject uh, today. What I want to talk about this evening is the way in which China's financial markets have been reformed in recent years, and they are now at a point where they are becoming of practical and rather significant importance for the rest of the world's financial system. The effects of this growth have been seen recently, and just in the last few months, um, I think we've begun to see the way in which events in China affect events in financial markets in the rest of the world. There was the day last February when the Shanghai stock market suddenly and rather inexplicably fell out of bed, and the markets in Wall Street and in London were affected quite sharply as well. And then just last week, we saw ICBC taking a large stake in Standard Bank of South Africa, um, which was another sign of how Chinese financial institutions are now of a scale and significance that can affect markets in other countries, which a couple of years ago would have been quite uh, unthinkable. So what I propose to do this evening is take you through uh, six topics. First, to talk about the evolution and the shape of China's financial system in very macro terms. Secondly, to talk a little about the big macro imbalances between China and the rest of the world, but only really as a context and to, to talk about financial sector reform. I'm not going to talk at length about the macroeconomic origins of the financial imbalances between China and the rest of the world, but talk about the way in which they are affecting the Chinese financial sector. I shall then say something about China's emerging mega banks, which are very significant, something about China's capital markets, which are far less well reformed so far and where there is still a great deal more to do, uh, then something about the regulatory environment in China, and finally, the implications for the global financial system uh, and what needs to be done uh, in the light of these developments. So uh, let's proceed. First of all, something about the evolution and shape of China's financial system. Well, the first thing to say is that it is becoming a significant part of the global system. These are figures from the McKinsey Global Institute. They are a little bit out of date, although the report was only produced at the end of last year. Uh, but the figures for the whole of the world's financial stock uh, are from the end of 2004. And you can see from that that China at that point um, represented about 4.5% of the total financial stock in the world's capital markets. The, word, the financial stock here is quite simply defined as the aggregate of bank deposits 
uh, of the value of equities and bonds traded on capital markets. So obviously it is a, a volatile number because the value of equities and bonds goes uh, up and down. But it, as a sighting shot, it gives you an idea of the scale of China's markets. And if you look at the growth rates, uh, the world's financial stock uh, has been growing at about 9% a year. Uh, that typically is about twice um, the global GDP growth rate. The amount of intermediation in the world's financial system is going up uh, by about twice uh, the rate of the GDP as a whole. But in China, it's been, the financial stock's been growing at about 14% compared to a growth rate of about 9 or 10% on average during that period. Uh, so you only have to extrapolate those growth rates to see uh, that China's financial system uh, is becoming relatively larger as each year goes by. In one sense, China's system is already quite well developed. What this shows is the stock as a percentage of GDP, which in a sense reflects the way in which GDP is intermediated uh, financially and is a rough measure of the financial sophistication of a country. So in both Japan and the US, uh, the financial stock represents just over 400% of GDP. Uh, in the UK, 350 in the Eurozone, uh, almost the same. And China already at over 300% of GDP, which, as you can see, uh, is twice the ratio of India. Uh, so in this sense, uh, China's financial system already looks quite well-developed and reasonably sophisticated, more so than India, which would often be regarded as a rather comparable economy. But if you disaggregate this a little and ask yourself what is the shape of the Chinese financial system, you can see uh, that in fact it is very heavily dependent on banks. Um, and fully, I mean, over 60% of the financial stock of China is in the banking system rather than in uh, bonds, stocks, etc. And that is uh, significantly more, not only uh, than the US uh, or the Eurozone. Uh, the UK uh, on this measure is almost exactly halfway between the US and Europe, which is kind of where we are fated to be on foreign policy and every other thing. Um, but uh, if you look at this, even um, India uh, has been more successful in developing its stock and bond markets. And one of the main weaknesses uh, that China has is that it is heavily dependent on banks. And I'll see, well, I'll show you a little bit more of that comparison just in a moment. So if you look at the way China features in the world's financial system and break it down into private debt, government debt, uh, equities and bank deposits, which are the main component parts of this concept of the financial stock, uh, you can see uh, that China, on this measure, is already about 8% of the world's banking system, uh, although less than 2% of the other parts. So in terms of banking, 
China is already significant. And I think if it was 8% in 2004, the likelihood is that it is now closer to 10%. In my rule of thumb now is that China is about 10% of the world's banking system, which is uh, double what it was probably five years ago. If you look a little bit more at this uh, composition of the financial stock, um, and on the right-hand side, you can see, for those who can't quite see the numbers, China is this one here. Uh, that is India, uh, and that is Japan. So this is Eastern Europe, the Eurozone, the UK, and the US. Um, and really, all you need to see is the relative size of the different shades of blue, in that China has 62% of its financial stock uh, in the banking system, and a very small amount in government debt, very small in private debt securities and equities, about a quarter uh, of the financial stock. And as you can see, um, by comparison with India, very, very heavily dependent on banks. And this is a weakness um, in that much more of the credit allocation process in China goes through the banking system than is typical in other countries at a similar state of development. And that has, I think, uh, some economic importance uh, because in other places, financial systems are complex animals, but with interlocking judgments made by banks and made by people who buy and issue equities and people who buy and issue bonds, which interact with each other to produce an assessment of the viability um, of different investment proposals. In China, far more of the credit responsibility rests on the banking system, with the banks having relatively weak signals from other markets to help them make those decisions. And if you like, that is one way of describing the reason why China had a massive non-performing loan problem uh, and still has a sizable non-performing loan problem in spite of all the reforms uh, that have been undertaken. Um, there are uh, other uh, figures that have been produced um, on slightly different basis from the McKinsey ones. This is on a, a study by a group of uh, academics but sponsored by the World Bank. Uh, looking at financial depth and breadth of China and other Asian countries. Uh, and the interesting point here, however, is generically the same, directionally the same as that I was giving to you, that bank deposits as a percentage of GDP, which is the second column, are very much higher in China than elsewhere in the region. Um, and the percentage of adults with an account at a formal or semi-formal financial institution is also very high by comparison with other countries at a similar income level. So China does have a large and quite sophisticated banking system and one which has spread itself quite effectively into even rural areas. The Chinese government are, however, still very anxious about rural finance. That's not an area which I'm going to talk about much tonight because it doesn't have a huge effect internationally. But there is a problem in that beyond where the formal banking system reaches, there is quite a different challenge for rural finance, uh, which the authorities are addressing by looking at the models in 
Japan post-war where they had a system of rural credit cooperatives with a kind of central bank for credit cooperatives on top. So I'm not underestimating the challenge of rural finance in China, but it doesn't have much impact on the rest of the world. The other side of the coin, as I've said, of this highly developed banking system um, is that other uh, parts of the financial system are very undeveloped. I'll talk a bit more about the stock and bond markets, but this is just an indication of what's going on in the insurance market. This is the assets managed by insurance companies, uh, where, as you can see, uh, China is much, much smaller in relation to GDP uh, than other countries in Asia. The Chinese insurance industry is still very weakly developed indeed. So that's the overall very macro picture, a system which in aggregate is quite well developed, quite a deep financial system, but one which is very heavily dependent on banks, with stock and bond markets relatively poorly developed, and the insurance industry still at a very primitive stage by comparison with other countries in the region. Let me then move on to my second point, uh, which is the macro imbalances and their impact on financial reform. Now, probably for most people in the LSE uh, who read the newspapers, I barely need to explain this. Um, but, of course, China and the US have been mirror images of each other uh, for the last uh, decade or so, with the US running a very sizable trade deficit um, with uh, large increases in consumption, with personal consumption growing much more rapidly than GDP, and the savings rate in the US for households broadly zero. In fact, in the last two years, the US savings rate has been negative. While by contrast, China has been running a massive trade surplus, sometimes in double digits of GDP, with a savings rate uh, of above 40% um, of household income. Now, the reasons for this are many and varied. Of course, in China, the lack of a safety net combined with the one-child policy uh, has meant that individuals and households are very cautious um, and are saving because they do not know who is going to look after them in their old age. That's one dimension of the problem. Another dimension is that the United States appears to be in a sort of late Roman Empire mood, um, uh, spending way above its means um, and running huge trade uh, deficits, which, of course, it can finance because uh, of the position of the dollar in the world's financial system. Uh, of course, there is a, another narrative and discourse in Congress which argues that this is all... Uh, attributable to cheating uh, on the part of the Chinese uh, in relation to the uh, exchange rate uh, and that this is a kind of deliberate exchange rate manipulation uh, to generate these uh, imbalances. Whatever the reasons for them, this is the consequence uh, that China's foreign uh, exchange reserves, these are the figures from the State Administration of Foreign Exchange SAFE, um, have gone up uh, from broadly speaking, nothing very much in the early 1990s, uh, up to uh, $1.2 trillion at the beginning of this year, and going up by billions of dollars 
every day. Now, uh, this is uh, very large. Where has it gone? Well, largely, uh, China has been buying U.S. treasuries uh, so that uh, they now own over 400 billion of U.S. treasuries. Now, the Chinese, of course, have recently decided that they would like to diversify their holdings and have set up uh, this uh, state wealth fund, uh, or sovereign wealth fund, as they're now being called, um, which is planning to diversify. This is going to be rather delicate because depending on what they choose to buy with their money, they could find some resistance, particularly in the U.S., We, of course, here are so open that if the Chinese decided to come and buy the LSE, uh, we would welcome them with open arms. Uh, But in the United States, it's not quite so easy. Uh, And when Dubai wanted to buy ports, which had been previously owned by a British company, the the American political establishment uh, rejected them. So this is going to be a delicate question, but I'm not uh, proposing to go there uh, this evening, except in rather general terms. But the problem, I think, with these imbalances um, and the relationship with the exchange rate policy is that it does have important consequences for financial reform. Now, I do not believe that these surpluses have been generated entirely by a fixed exchange rate policy. I do not follow the manipulation narrative to describe the origins of these imbalances. I think that what I've said about consumption and savings and the dynamics of consumption and savings in China and the US are more of the source of the story. But nonetheless, um, the reaction to these surpluses by the Chinese authorities has not been particularly flexible. And although uh, from the last, over the last year there has been some flexibility in the RMB, uh, not enough uh, to make any difference to this picture. And the exchange rate has not been flexible enough uh, to make it possible to administer more imaginative financial reforms. I mean, the logic here is that the inflexible exchange rate effectively means uh, that China has no independent interest rate policy. If you have a fixed uh, exchange rate, then essentially you take your monetary policy from the country uh, with whose currency you are fixed. Uh, This uh, has also had the consequence of large current account surpluses and more capital inflows. Uh, This makes domestic macroeconomic policy rather difficult, and it makes financial sector reforms rather complicated uh, because there is resource misallocation because of export-led growth where the exchange rate and the opportunities in export markets can tend to distort investment into companies which are uh, export-led. And you generate inflation overheating in the short term. Uh, You get uh, non-performing loans in the banking system. You get asset price uh, bubbles. And then finally, you may get trade sanctions if the trade surplus widens unsustainably. I'll come back on to the uh, protectionism in the US point a little bit later. But from the financial system point of view, 
it has been quite difficult, given the fixed exchange rate policy, uh, to control what has been going on in the domestic financial system because of the constraints that this exchange rate policy imposes on the use of interest rates uh, to control domestic financial conditions. So the fixed exchange rate policy, which has had some advantages uh, for China, also brings about uh, some significant problems uh, in the management of its financial system. My third point is about the emergence of China's mega banks. And this has been quite a uh, dramatic story and one which I believe has been managed extremely effectively by the People's Bank and the banking regulator over the last few years. These figures are from the uh, CBRC's um, annual report and show the total uh, assets and liabilities of the Chinese banking system uh, in uh, rather oddly um, they produce them in hundreds of millions of RMB. This is a bit like the way the Indians uh, produce figures, which are deeply baffling uh, to most of us. But uh, that's the way the CBRC uh, produced them. Uh, so it's uh, four, three, nine, five, and a lot of zeros um, of assets, uh, and four, one, seven, one, oh, six, and slightly fewer zeros of liabilities. And precisely how many zeros that is, I find it difficult to work out. But there we are. Uh, so you can see, most significantly, the growth rate of the China banking system uh, has been very, very large uh, in the last uh, four years. I mean, growth rate of about 15% a year in assets and liabilities. If you look at the way the system breaks down, um, you can see that the big chunk of it is the large state-owned commercial banks. That's, that's ICBC, Bank of China, China Construction, Bank of Communications, Agricultural Bank of China. Uh, that's the second large bar. From the bottom, uh, if you can't read the uh, writing on it, it's the policy banks at the bottom, the development bank, etc. The state-owned commercial banks are the big bar. Then the joint stock commercial banks and the city commercial banks, the yellow bit, uh, rural cooperatives, as I've said, quite an important part in terms of economic development uh, and poverty alleviation in China, uh, though not significant internationally, non-banks, postal savings banks, and at the top, a very tiny sliver uh, for foreign banks, uh, something which foreign banks uh, would like to see grow. So the big story in China's financial system is about the large state-owned commercial banks, they have been becoming significantly more profitable. I'll say a little bit about the non-performing loan problem in a moment, but in 2001, 2 and 3, uh, these banks were really essentially making no money at all. They were still faced with large amounts of bad debts from the uh, splurge of the 1990s, and they were working them through. But in the last three years they have turned around very significantly. Uh, these banks are making large profits now. And these profits are pretty real because these banks are now uh, audited by um, big four audit firms in China. There are question marks about some of China's accounting Practices. There are clearly judgments to be made about non-performing loans, the scale of them, etc. 
where some people commenting on Chinese bank results believe that they have not been as prudent as a British or an American bank uh, would be. But in my view, these are pretty decent numbers. And certainly, the trend is directionally correct. There is absolutely no doubt about that. If we look at non-performing loans, uh, admittedly, these are officially reported figures, uh, and you will find uh, analyses by accounting firms and by Standard & Poor's who believe that the true figures are somewhat higher than this. Uh, but nobody disputes that they have been going down. Uh, and the ratio of NPLs, which is the ratio on the right, uh, has now fallen on a reported basis to about 8% uh, from 25% uh, only four years ago. Now, uh, of course, even 8% uh, is an absurd figure by uh, British standards. Um, typically, non-performing loans in British banks would be 1.2, one3 uh, So we are talking still about figures which internationally are very, very high. But there is absolutely no doubt that they have been falling. It's worth just detaining you for a moment on the non-performing loan problem because so much uh, is written about it uh, and it is, I think, important to understand um, how this arose um, and the extent to which it reflects weaknesses in the banking system and the extent to which it reflects political uh, weaknesses. Um, essentially, I regard the non-performing loan problem as really a residue of the casualties of economic reform. And by that I mean that we tend to look at Chinese economic growth and say it's magnificent the Chinese economy has been growing at 10% a year. And we tend to see this as a kind of straight line uh, growth. But of course we know, if we think about it, that within that 10% figure, uh, there are companies that have been growing at 30 40% compound and lots who have been casualties. Uh, even the Chinese, with their magnificent organization of their economy, cannot achieve a 10% growth rate for every company everywhere in China all the time. And so what has happened, of course, is that many uh, companies, particularly state-owned enterprises, and up to, of course, uh, seven or eight years ago, almost all the enterprises in China were state-owned, a lot of them have attempted to grow and have gone bust. And when they have gone bust, the banks have found it almost impossible to recover anything from their investment. And that relates to the uncertainties about property prices. One of the striking things about China and the banking system is that the rate of non-performing loans um, is certainly very high internationally, but also the recovery on non-performing loans is astonishingly low. And that really is the most striking thing when you compare Chinese banks with others. In this country, or in the US, particularly if you're talking about a manufacturing company, the company goes bust, it stops paying its debt, the bank moves in, and it owns the factory. Well, the factory and the equipment may not be worth a lot, but the land in an economy growing at 10% a year is worth a huge amount. The banks, however, in China have very rarely got access to this land because it then turned out the land was owned by the state government or the provincial government, and they said, well, no, we're not giving it to the banks, even though they had a loan out based on that uh, security. So the recovery rate was very, very low. So although it is certainly true that 
the banks were poor at credit appraisal and certainly lent uh, to enterprises to which they uh, should never have had one yuan exposure. Uh, nonetheless, uh, the scale of the problem um, has been one which they could not control because they were not able to get access uh, to the collateral and to the assets of these institutions uh, after the point at which they stopped paying debts. And these loans were, in many cases, politically driven. The formula approach to capital allocation, which really was the basis on which the Chinese economy grew until quite recently, was such that the banks didn't have a great deal of choice about where they were obliged to lend. So that was how the problem arose. The government's response has been pretty decisive once they decided in about 2001 that they really had to deal with this because otherwise uh, the banks could not be floated, could not become genuinely commercial banks. So the worst loans have been moved to asset management companies, what we call in the jargon bad banks, who are then single-mindedly focused on trying to recover something from those loans. The banks have been given huge <coughs> capital injections to improve the quality of their balance sheets. There has been some enhancement of recovery rates with banks allowed access to the assets of companies to which they had lent. And there have been restrictions on political lending. Now, how effective those restrictions are, I suspect, varies from place to place. I suspect that in the major coastal cities, they are now reasonably effective. I suspect that in some more remote areas, they are less so, and that there is still a lot of political control over the way in which banks allocate credit. However, overall, one has to say uh, that this has been pretty successful. It has, as a policy, brought these ratios significantly down um, and has been effective, therefore, in turning these huge Chinese banks from essentially financially lame ducks. I mean, even uh, as recently as 2003, a bank like ICBC was not one uh, which you would uh, have thought conceivably uh, attractive to overseas investors. So they have turned that round. The only question is, and this links back to my second point about the impact of the fixed exchange rate and on the financial imbalances, um, is there now a risk of new non-performing loans developing from an overheated property market, which the Chinese, given the way in which macro policy is formulated, find it quite difficult to respond to. So although the non-performing loan problem uh, has been significantly reduced, I think there are still uh, some grounds for nervousness about whether it might not reappear. The overall consequence of this, however, has been that the number and, uh, of banks that meets international capital adequacy requirements, uh, these are the essentially Basel-driven capital requirements which internationally active banks uh, need to meet before they can operate in other countries, um, that the number of banks meeting those requirements is now significantly larger uh, than it was. I say very few Chinese banks and really only quite small merchant banks were meeting the requirements in 2003, and now 100 are, reflecting almost 80% of the assets in the Chinese banking system. And these figures, I think, are broadly accepted by other regulators. When I was uh, chairman of the FSA, uh, one of the 
difficulties we faced at that time was that Chinese banks wished to establish themselves in London. They could only be allowed to establish themselves with branches in London if they were meeting international capital requirements. Um, and at the time, our judgment was largely that they did not. Uh, and I had some uncomfortable, shall we say, discussions with the governor of the People's Bank uh, at that time uh, about Chinese banks and their position in London and uh, New York. Now, um, you will have seen that banks like ICBC have been allowed to open branches in the UK, and that means that the FSA here is satisfied that they do have capital resources which meet internationally accepted standards. So these figures, which are ones reported by the CBRC, uh, are accepted by other regulators uh, internationally. As far as the big four is concerned, the strategy for them has been, first of all, to strengthen their balance sheets, and I've shown you how that has been done. But secondly, to bring in uh, strategic shareholders, usually partners from other international banks, whether it's uh, HSBC um, or uh, Citibank uh, or others. Uh, and those strategic shareholders have been strengthening management capacity in the banks and have been acting as joint venture partners in some parts of the business. And then, of course, there have been IPOs in Hong Kong, Shanghai, and maybe conceivably uh, in London in the future, which have partly been in order to access capital, although, in fact, these banks are not really short of capital. They don't absolutely need to get capital. And I think those IPOs have been more as a signal to the rest of the world that China intends to maintain these banks in a good, sound capital position and also as a spur to corporate governance reform uh, because linked to the IPO has been the introduction of independent international directors onto the main boards of these banks um, and, of course, the introduction of international standard audits carried out by Big Four accounting firms. So I would see the IPOs as being as much about corporate governance reform and as much about giving a signal about the way these institutions will be managed in the future as they are uh, about raising capital. Because capital, uh, as I've said, is not exactly what the Chinese are short of. Um, if you look at what's happened there, uh, the IPOs in some cases have been massive. ICBC uh, the biggest one, Industrial Commercial Bank of China, um, was uh, raised $21 billion uh, just last year. Uh, and in most cases, uh, the shares have gone up pretty sharply thereafter. Uh, those were the immediate price increases. Uh, in fact, if you had uh, invested your student loan in ICBC shares last year, you wouldn't be worrying about your finances at the moment. In fact, probably... <laughs> Uh, you would have left the LSE to set up your own company rather than carrying on with your degree. But um, uh, the, these have been very successful uh, IPOs uh, so far. And now um, these institutions are very large indeed um, internationally. Um, I'm sorry, there's a misprint. I've missed out. These corporations, I'm not sure what they are. But um, the, uh, if you look at... Um, the market value just at the uh, beginning of last month, um, then you now can see that three of the top ten banks in the world 
by market value are ICBC, China Construction Bank, and Bank of China. Um, and this is an absolutely massive change in, in the ranking uh, of world financial institutions. And indeed, over the last uh, six weeks, uh, ICBC and the other two Chinese have gone up, uh, and Bank of America <coughs> certainly uh, has gone down. Uh, so we now have a very different world banking landscape with three of the top ten banks by market value now uh, Chinese. And if I had said to you five years ago that that would happen, you would scarcely have believed it when even in 2003 um, the Chinese banking system was essentially bust. It had really no capital to speak of. Uh, and yet now they have three of the top ten banks by market value. That's in terms of uh, commercial banking. Uh, if we look at um, investment banking, this is a McKinsey-driven table on the uh, investment banking. They're not quite as significant. Um, but numbers 15, 17, and 18 on the uh, investment banking table, uh, looking at corporate investment and investment banking revenues, um, are already... Chinese banks, with ICBC already above HSBC in terms of its corporate and investment banking. Uh, clearly uh, not uh, anywhere near Goldman's and JP Morgan at this point on this measure. But not simple commercial, individual, personal banking uh, already becoming quite significant in investment banking. Even though they still are, on some measures, actually quite weak. Uh, these rankings have gone up uh, a little bit, and of course, given the criticisms recently of the rating agencies, maybe we should disregard them completely. But uh, although their long-term debt ratings have been quite high, and now um, uh, A2s, if you look at overall financial strength, which is a complicated measure, but including the capital reserves, uh, not just, as it were, the probability of default on the bonds, which is what the um, long-term bond rate, uh, ratings are measuring, but the overall capital strength of these institutions, they are still relatively weak um, internationally. Now, there still are problems ahead uh, for the Chinese banking system, and although they are now, as I say, three of the top ten, there still is a lot to do. In my view, interest banking reform is not uh, complete, these big banks have been cleaned up and recapitalized, but there is still an important need to upgrade management expertise, improve risk management, and this is a moving target because as these institutions move into quite different areas of business, then they need different skills, and I think that is the big challenge. That's why I showed you where they were now in corporate invest and investment banking. That requires a completely different approach to risk management in Chinese banks than they had even three or four years ago. Of course, even three or four years ago, with the one exception of Bank of China, they had very, very little foreign exchange business at all, and certainly very little business in other markets. So a whole new area of risk management uh, has arisen for Chinese banks. And, of course, they don't have incentive systems in the way that their competitors do. Uh, and I believe that's going to be important. There is still a need to reduce the non-performing loan ratios. 
Uh, and there are still underperforming banks whose capitalization needs to be improved. And I think that the problem of political influence does remain prevalent in some parts of the country. And there are some difficulties in the legal framework in particular, especially related to the rights that banks have over assets um, of companies to which they have lent. But in my view, the biggest issues are still probably uh, cultural. The transition within the Chinese banking system from an essentially formula lending basis whereby loans were parceled up and lent geographically to one which is actually based on credit approval processes um, where banks actually say no to state-owned enterprises that want money that is a major cultural change. And also, there is a need in China, and this is probably the most difficult problem they face, to create the kind of tensions between banks and regulators and indeed within banks which keep banks lively and honest in our system. Now, anybody who has worked in a bank uh, in a Western country will know that the lending officers, just like Chinese branches, want to lend. And they are constrained um, by the credit guys. And they are sort of programmed to hate the credit guys. Uh, the credit controllers you know, in regional head office will always be saying no to some of the propositions brought back to them by the lending officers. And then they may even be trumped by the overall risk managers at the top of the system who may say, yeah, sure, it may be a good credit, but actually we've got enough of that kind of credit, and for our overall risk management purposes, we don't want any more, so you can't lend. And these tensions within the banks are inbuilt, and indeed they are nurtured by top management. That is what they are supposed to be. You do not want uh, your credit people and your lending officers to be too chummy with each other. That's part of the way things ought to be. Then there is a further tension with the internal auditors, uh, who are coming and checking that you have actually followed the processes of getting approval from the credit people and the risk managers. And then the external auditors coming on top of that, and then the regulators from outside as well. And you expect there to be tension between the regulators and regulated firms. In China, these tensions, I do not think, exist in anything like this form so far. There are, it is still one system where people are moved around and indeed it's quite possible to see uh, that somebody from the CBRC then becomes uh, head of a bank and then moves into uh, the central bank and then moves to the CSRC there's a kind of deployment of individuals around the system which has a lot of sense in terms of career development of those people but which in my view will over time have to change if there are going to be created within the system uh, the sort of tensions uh, that make a financial system work effectively. Fourthly, on the capital markets. As I said at the beginning, China's, banking system, China's financial system is too heavily reliant on banks. Most countries at this stage of development have developed their capital markets to a much greater extent than the Chinese have. There have, of course, been considerable reforms in the equity markets, 
the government have sold off many of their shareholdings. They have introduced the beginnings of an investor compensation scheme. Uh, there has been some tough regulatory enforcement by the CSRC. Some securities firms have been closed. And some overseas investment uh, has been allowed in the market. Recently, we've seen some positive consequences from all of these reforms in that the stock market capitalization uh, has begun to grow rather sharply. Uh, for quite a long period after a boom in 2000, there was a depressed capital market in China. The reasons for the length of this depression are much debated, um, but essentially there was a huge overhang of government-owned shares. So whenever there was any kind of recovery in the market, the government dumped some more shares uh, and seems to knock it uh, on the head. We seem to have worked through that. And indeed, uh, now, uh, from a period when last year at my meetings with the CSRC, there was still gloom and doom about the equity markets. Now, of course, everybody's worrying about an equity market bubble, which the authorities find it difficult to know what to do about. Uh, so just recently... Uh, this has turned round, and of course, the Shanghai index has been going uh, absolutely uh, crazy, um, and um, even you know, way above uh, the Indian and other markets with which it might reasonably be uh, compared. Nonetheless, although we've got a, a capital market boom, I still think there are big issues in Chinese securities markets. Uh, the brokerage industry is still very diverse, very poorly capitalized, and its standards by Chinese admissions, I'm not saying anything that the CSRC wouldn't say here, uh, its standards of behavior in relation to clients have not been uh, what they need to be. So there's still, I think, a lot to be done in capital markets, and I hope that the fact that there has been a rapid uh, escalation of prices and essentially an equity bubble uh, does not cause the authorities to forget that there's a lot more to do. In the bond markets too, uh, there are big reforms which are part underway but which still need to be uh, pursued. One of the difficulties about bond markets in China is that almost all the bonds issued have essentially been government guaranteed. And you don't get a lively bond market unless you have some price volatility and some arbitrage opportunities. I mean, why would anyone be interested in the marketplace otherwise? But of course, you don't get much of that if all the bonds are essentially government guaranteed. So the bond market in China has been very boring uh, and therefore has not really attracted the kind of interest uh, and new issuers that it would need to do. This is quite difficult because creating non-guaranteed bonds is, of course, at first sight, a rather irrational thing to do. Because if you say this bond is not guaranteed by the government, then you will actually have to sell it at a higher yield uh, because of the risk. So you're sort of creating risk deliberately and increasing cost. But in the long run, if you want to have a bond market which takes its share of the burden of financing China's rapidly growing economy, then that risk has to be taken. Because without that, you won't get rating agencies coming into the market, you won't get secondary markets that are lively. You won't get repo markets. And, of course, you also have to, I think, to take the risk of establishing uh, derivatives markets. The regulators now say they want to do that. They are beginning the process of doing so. Uh, of course, it's a tricky thing to open 
uh, a derivatives market uh, from scratch. But it clearly needs to be done. And lastly, in the capital markets area, uh, there is still a lot to do on corporate governance. The CSRC has issued a code of practice on corporate governance, which is excellent. I helped to launch it uh, myself. Um, uh, but it is a very good compilation, I think, and an adaptation of different parts of corporate governance practice from other countries, uh, but adapted for the Chinese circumstance. But, of course, uh, producing a code is one thing, uh, and getting everybody to follow it is quite another. Um, and introducing independent directors into Chinese companies, where do they come from and whose interests are they acting, is not at all straightforward. Uh, and, of course, needs to go hand in hand with more distributed ownership of shares. Uh, and that raises uh, all kinds of tricky uh, political issues as well. But it looks as if things are moving in the right uh, direction. Uh, if you look at what companies say they are going to do, uh, and these are still largely state-owned companies, but they have declared their plans, uh, then, in fact, uh, you can see that what they're saying is that they will increase the number of tradable shares on offer. So this is projected, this is declared policy. It will be interesting to see uh, if it happens. This, as I say, is based on a, a sample of 150 companies who have said what they plan to do in terms of increasing the number of shares that are actually in the market, uh, and that's what they say. Uh, but whether it will happen, of course, any time will tell. My fifth point is about uh, regulation. I think regulation in China has been massively upgraded in the last few years, but of course there is a lot more to do. The Chinese system was, until 2002, essentially all within the People's Bank framework. So the People's Bank really was, in addition to being the monetary authority and the conventional central bank, also the regulator of all parts of the financial system. And out of the People's Bank were born three commissions, the banking one, securities one, and the uh, insurance uh, commission, which have over the last four or five years developed themselves as independent entities and developed their expertise uh, in quite significant ways. Two of them, the CBRC and the CSRC, have set up international advisory councils, which are quite uh, serious bodies, I think. They have all spent a lot of money on training, they have all committed themselves to meeting international standards, whether the Basel Committee or IOSCO, which is the International Organization of Securities Commissions. Uh, and, of course, they have been committed uh, to opening up the markets following China's entry to the WTO. But there is, of course, quite a sizable but. Um, and one uh, convenient uh, list of the things that China has still to do uh, was provided recently um, in a rather extraordinary speech uh, delivered in Beijing uh, by Hank Paulson, the US Treasury uh, Secretary. Extraordinary because it was a remarkable, I mean, it was rather good, I think, um, as an analysis, but a remarkably detailed sort of reform project for another country. Uh, but then, of course, the Americans don't worry about that sort of thing. Um, and uh, Paulson's reform agenda um, was, first of all, in capital markets that there should be a more liquid and transparent bond market. I've already talked about that. 
he is absolutely right, though it's not totally straightforward as to how to do it. Removing barriers between listed and over-the-counter markets also uh, would make a lot of sense and indeed, I think, is not really controversial in China. Of course, eliminating interest rate controls and guarantee requirements is also a nice thing to say, but this does strike at the heart of the way in which the financial system in China has been managed. Uh, and the process of setting different interest rates and different credit appraisals is rather delicate uh, for a bank because you may be looking at two apparently state-owned enterprises and then uh, setting them different interest rates, which is, of course, an interesting message uh, in itself. On asset management, uh, he argues for removing restrictions on institutional uh, investors. I think this may well uh, make sense, and indeed part of the reason why the Chinese stock market has been going up so rapidly is that some of these internal restrictions on the way in which pension funds owned by state governments could invest their money has, have been removed, and so they've been allowed to invest in equities, which they hadn't been allowed to do before. Allowing new professionals to enter the industry is really all about foreigners, um, because there aren't professional asset managers in China with a track record because there hasn't been such a thing. And therefore, the question there is just how far China is prepared to allow foreign asset management firms into the market. I think they would be well advised uh, to expand that because I think it is a technology that they simply don't have at present. In the banking sector, he argues for improved reporting of loan quality. Uh, that's code for saying confess uh, to your non-performing loans. Now, in my view, uh, the banking regulators have done a lot of that. Uh, I think that the uh, way in which NPLs are now reported in China is much closer uh, to the way in which we would think about it overseas than it was even three or four years ago. Stronger risk management is absolutely right, and I've already said that. Consolidated supervision, uh, similarly. I think the Chinese actually are practicing a version of consolidated supervision, and indeed, you might say, given the extraordinary complexity of the U.S. regulatory system, it's a pretty good joke for the U.S. to demand consolidated supervision uh, in another country uh, where it's actually almost impossible to know who is supervising what in the United States. Uh, when I was the head of the FSA, I had at least 78 opposite numbers uh, in the United States, and there are more uh, of them. Uh, so this is a do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do observation by uh, Hank Paulson. Again, also, for the Americans to go and say that regulation should be simplified uh, is breathtaking. Um, uh, given the number of state agencies involved in the United States. But they are right, of course, that stronger enforcement of corporate governance rules um, and deregulation. And this, of course, is what Paulson really meant, um, was that he wants them to deregulate their foreign exchange market. Now, in my view, that is probably, broadly speaking, correct. I think that not from a market manipulation point of view, but from the point of view of developing China's internal financial system for its own purposes, I think a more flexible exchange rate policy would make sense, accompanied, of course, with a more flexible interest rate policy so that China could set interest rates and financial conditions in relation 
to what was going on in the Chinese economy. Uh, because I think an economy of China's size, I do not think, can operate a monetary policy made in Washington. And that is another way, of course, of describing what they have with a fixed exchange rate regime. I think that's fine for a global entrepot like Hong Kong or Singapore that may well make sense. And to have your own domestic, separate, independent monetary policy is difficult. So hooking yourself to the dollar may make sense. Actually, they're worrying about it at the moment because the dollar is only going one direction. They may have done better to hook themselves to a hard currency uh, rather than to the dollar. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, it can make sense. For China, I'm not sure that in the long run it can conceivably make sense for them to export responsibility for their monetary policy. And lastly, Paulson says, well, lift limitations on the foreign ownership of security firms and asset managers. And in fact, uh, since he made the speech, the Chinese have, broadly speaking, done that and have said that they are prepared now to see other securities firms own brokers in China, whereas for the last couple of years that has not been possible. Um, and, of course, to liberate the investment environment somewhat. In fact, I don't believe that either of these points are particularly controversial in China. It is a question of the timing of these changes, uh, and I think the timing may well be quite propitious now, uh, given what's happened to the exchange rate and given what's happened to the domestic uh, markets. Lastly, just a word or two on the implications for the global financial system, though I think most of these implications have been implicit in what I have said. First of all, of course, as I've shown, there are now huge new banks with regional and indeed global ambitions. And they are now capitalized well enough to be able to operate overseas. They are admitted to key global centers like London, New York, and Singapore, which four years ago they were not. They are now supported significantly by knowledge transfer from strategic shareholders, uh, which uh, is, of course, a gamble by those shareholders uh, that this technology transfer will get its own reward. So far, of course, they've been quite pleased because the share price has risen, so the carrying value of the investments that these foreign shareholders have made uh, has gone up dramatically. But, and this I think is a very important <coughs> point, these banks are not still as margin sensitive as other banks with more demanding shareholders. They do not face the kinds of pressure to make profits as HSBC or Citibank do. And the risk I see here is that the Chinese banks go simply for market share and make the mistake that the Japanese banks made uh, in the 1970s and the 1980s. In 1989, Japanese banks owned 27% of the assets of the London banking market. And now they have 3%. And that was because at the time they were expanding massively, rapidly, and were prepared to lend on speculative property transactions at LIBOR plus a 16th. Um, and this was crazy. But their strategy was to grow the balance sheet rather than to grow profitability. 
Then, of course, in the late 80s, um, around the 1989 to 91 period, when the Japanese property market collapsed, those banks had no capital at all. They had massively negative capital and could not lend. That resulted in sort of stagnation in the Japanese economy for a number of years, and they had to merge and retrench and retreat from overseas markets on an absolutely remarkable scale. And because this process was rather carefully managed by the Japanese institutions, the government had to come in and guarantee uh, all deposits, where I've heard that before, um, and uh, they did manage this process reasonably effectively, but it's a massive process of external aggrandizement and retreat. And I just hope that the Chinese banks do not go down that track because I think it would be absolutely uh, disastrous for them to do so, and they are capable of doing it, given the scale that they have at the moment. Very finally, um, of course, we now have to take notice of what's going on in Shanghai. It has to be on your radar screen. Shanghai market movements can now affect Wall Street and London, and that was not the case until 2007. But China's financial reserves are, as I said, over a trillion US dollars. There is going to be more active management of those reserves, which will be positive for returns probably, but may well generate negative reactions. And this debate about how we deal with sovereign wealth funds is one which I think is going to be one of the hottest button political topics globally over the next few years because I don't think that certainly the US is ready for uh, what could happen and the Chinese have started this fund with a mere $200 billion which is a little bit of a float to go and play with uh, but these are large numbers um, you know you could buy General Motors with that uh, not that anyone would wish to I think but um, uh, you know this could create a significant political blowback uh, in the United States. And that, to me, means that China has to be integrated into global decision-making structures, because if not, I think we will face some dangerous conflicts in this area, because I think that there has been too little understanding still about the sheer scale of what has been going on in the China's financial system. Everybody can tell you about China's manufactured exports. Everybody knows about that. But I think this scale of the financial system and the weight of these institutions and their power is a story that is still not as well understood as it should be. I was fascinated to find uh, today uh, that Larry Summers in today's Financial Times uh, has made exactly the same point that if you look at the global financial system now, is the G7 um, with Canada and Italy as members, but not China and India, does that make sense as a group in which to discuss how to manage uh, the world's financial system? I think it does not. If you look at the Basel Committee, which sets the world's rules for banking, which is a very, very important committee, there are 13 members of the Basel Committee, uh, 10 of which are from Europe, uh, including Luxembourg, uh, but not China. <laughs> it simply makes no sense at all. 
And given that I think the Chinese now, the scale of their financial system and the scale of their investments overseas means they have a vested interest in managing this system smoothly and in cooperating and collaborating to try to cope with the implications of financial imbalances. And I think that the time has now come to integrate them into that uh, financial system. They are too big an elephant to be left outside. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So I'd like to thank Howard for this incredibly clear and interesting lecture. We have time probably just for a few questions. We have about 15 minutes. There are a lot of people in the room. Um, if you want to ask a question, could I ask you to keep it a relatively short and straightforward one? We don't want long, rambling questions. Otherwise, I shall cut you off. Please. There's a microphone coming. Thank you. Thank you. You said because of China's fixed exchange rate regime, it doesn't have an independent monetary policy, yet five times this year the central bank in China has increased interest rates. So can you explain what you mean about that, please? Well, yes, it has been able to do uh, some. But the consequence, uh, of course, is quickly felt through the financial markets um, because, of the, uh, the, the, because the exchange rate is not able to adjust to relative interest rates. So it doesn't mean that you can't make any changes, but you can't have, you know, they, the, the consequences of those changes are, are not allowed to flow through uh, in, the, in the reserves, which I think is what uh, necessary. And also, uh, they have probably only been able to do that because they have allowed some flexibility in the exchange rate. I mean, they didn't have any flexibility until 18 months ago, and now they do have, they do have some. So I agree it is a matter of degree to some extent, but being unable to allow the exchange rate to take the strain does, I think, create a massive burden on the financial system to cope with the huge increase in reserves that, are, that result. We have a question here, please. Okay. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much, sir. Um, I just have two questions. Like, when uh, when you refer to China market, a uh, China financial market, like I just want like this, uh, Hong Kong is part of it because it has returned home like many years ago. And the second question, second question is like, if as you said, like the. China financial market has like a lot of restrictions. So, if like, if like, do you think if if the China liberalised the financial market, will it be good like for the economic growth? Thank you. Um, as far as Hong Kong is concerned, uh, then for the most part, I did not include Hong Kong as part of the China financial system uh, because it's largely because in a different currency. Uh, the market, Hong Kong market obviously is related to the Chinese market because I refer to the IPOs which have taken place in Hong Kong. So there's an interesting symbiotic relationship between the Hong Kong and the Shanghai markets. But no, in, in terms of the figures that I quoted, Hong Kong looks quite different. I mean, Hong Kong looks like Japan if you, look, if you want to compare it in terms of its financial uh, debt, etc. As far as the impact on financial growth is concerned, on economic growth is concerned, well, as a matter of principle, I would say 
that liberalizing the financial system is likely to be beneficial to economic growth because uh, the financial system at the moment is actually relatively inefficient uh, in terms of productivity. Measuring productivity in the financial system is quite difficult, but uh, McKinsey have actually produced a report sort of producing some pretty plausible estimates of productivity within the Chinese and Indian financial systems. And the you know, number of people employed in relation to assets and the number of people employed in relation to particular loans, etc., are just massively high. So the Chinese financial system is, in that simple sense, very inefficient. Um, and some further foreign competition would undoubtedly reduce that. Now, of course, that depends on whether you're prepared to allow those institutions to reduce their staffing. Uh, I mean, an institution like the Agricultural Bank of China is part bank and part uh, employment policy. You know? I mean, the bank, Agricultural Bank of China undoubtedly has you know, a quarter of a million more employees than it could plausibly need uh, for what it does. So the question would be, would you allow those banks? So I think the difficulty is not that anybody really contests that having some more competition in the system would make the system more efficient. The question is, are you prepared to allow the consequences of that in terms of labor shedding that there would be in the short run uh, in the financial system? If you're not prepared to do that, then, of course, opening to competition puts your institutions at a, massively, uh, a massive disadvantage. So that's the trade-off that the authorities are trying to make. We have a question right there. No, not there. Up top, please. Up top in the middle. Guy raising his hand. Yeah, there we go. Thank you. I just want to ask, um, what do you think is the best solution for the um, current fixed rate, fixed exchange rate policy in terms of the speed of change? Thank you. Um, well, I think I would, uh, I think I would increase the amount of flexibility uh, that could be allowed. I mean. I, One's tempted to say, you know, just let it float. Um, but I can see that you have created expectations in other parts of the financial system which could make just a rapid move to floating uh, quite damaging for people who had positioned themselves in terms of their borrowing in relation to a relatively fixed exchange rate. Uh, so I can see that gradual change is more appropriate. I think that the best option for the authorities would be to set out a clear path towards foreign currency flexibility. In other words, setting out broader bands which they were prepared to tolerate, stretching you know, a couple of years, two or three years into the future. Uh, because that would allow people to position themselves for the point at which the exchange rate would float. Um, and I think that people do need time to position themselves uh, for that. Uh, but I think otherwise, unless, you, unless they do something, then this, mount, this reserve mountain is just going to grow. Because as I was trying to uh, explain over here, possibly not as coherently as I should have done, if you, if you do raise domestic interest rates, but you don't let the foreign exchange, the exchange rate float, then all you do is magnify your reserves. 
because then you create more incentive for capital inflows uh, to, to get benefit of these higher interest rates. And the capital inflows you know, can't be offset by a falling exchange rate. So you magnify your reserve issue, which you may say is fine, but if you believe that, as I think I do now, that the Chinese are going to have quite a lot of difficulty investing those reserves because there are going to be resistances to investing their reserves, then increasing interest rates without letting the exchange rate take the strain is just going to accentuate your problem rather than resolve it. In, in this point of Thank you. Um, it's nearly 30 years ago that Deng Xiaoping said that he wasn't particularly bothered uh, what colour uh, the uh, colour the uh, mouse was, uh, so long, uh, sorry, the cat was, as long as it caught mice. And I just wondered, um, how long is it, do you feel, that all these amazing economic uh, changes are not going to have some uh, definite political implications? Thank you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, a historicist assessment would be that there needs to be political changes because if you look at, if you, if you plot, and uh, the, some people have attempted to do this, if you plot um, economic freedom and political freedom um, on an X and a Y axis, uh, then you can see that China is in a place on the chart that you're not supposed to be able to be. Um, in other words, with a remarkably high degree of economic freedom, um, and yet on, in conventional terms, uh, a rather low amount of political freedom. Um, so a determinist would say, you know, this has got one of these two things is going to have to change. Either there's going to be a sort of retreat from economic freedom or else there's going to be an increase. But, of course, um, China's been in this position for some time now. So it would be a brave man to, focus where, to forecast when that change would actually occur. Of course, the authorities will say, well, we are gradually introducing more democracy into the system at local level, and I believe there is some truth in that. Uh, there is also... Um, an interesting degree of, well, it might be a bit of a stretch to call it democracy, but there's an interesting degree of consultation within institutions. Um, uh, if you're in the China banking, the CBRC, for example, there is a uh, suggestion box um, and a voting system to vote on the quality of the leadership, uh, which is done privately and anonymously, um, in a way that happens in quite few institutions. I wouldn't allow any of that nonsense in the FSA, I can tell you. But um, uh, so, so there are... The LSC, we've had it, yes. <laughs> uh, but there are... So there are surprising forms of, of consultation within workplaces, which, you know, perhaps, perhaps give part of the explanation as to why the system can operate as it would. I, I find it very difficult to forecast when more political change will come alongside this economic change, but I would it does seem unlikely that China can remain in this position indefinitely Hi um, there, I noticed there was some price discrepancy between the, um, some listed company in each share in Hong Kong and the domestic listed company in China and recently there was some move um, from Hong Kong company to list it back domestically. Um, could you tell me 
um, the political and financial implication of those movements. Please, thanks. Yes, um, the, the fact that um, there have been restrictions on foreign investors buying shares in Shanghai, but they've been allowed to buy them in Hong Kong, has created what is, by international standards, a very peculiar uh, two-tier pricing structure for Chinese uh, equities. Uh, it's created also some rather interesting arbitraging opportunities. So there are people in investment banks who love it um, because they've been able to make uh, decent money out of it. It's hard to imagine that in the long run uh, that could be allowed to uh, persist. Uh, and indeed the, the sort of Paulson agenda uh, would involve uh, removing this distinction between the A shares and the, and the A shares. Um, I suspect because of the scale of the uh, discrepancy between the prices and the way people are positioned around it, that probably the answer to it is going to have to be a gradual answer in the way that I have responded on the exchange rate. Uh, because suddenly to announce that foreigners could buy uh, all the A shares in <coughs> Shanghai would create, a, would create massive losses for some people in a way that would be uh, quite difficult to sustain. Uh, so I think that uh, what the authorities need to do in that area is to set out a pathway uh, towards merging these two prices uh, and towards gradually allowing foreign investors into the domestic uh, markets. But it's hard to believe that the scale of that difference, which is sometimes as much as 50%, uh, can persist in the long run. Right over front. Thank you. Do you envisage China's ever having in the foreseeable future a leading comprehensive international financial center such as London or New York? Um, what do you mean? Will the Chinese take over London or New York? Um, <laughs> it's possible. Um, there's a piece of work currently uh, underway uh, in Shanghai um, to address that uh, question. Uh, and indeed the people doing it have sent me some of the papers and asked me for my, for my view on it. Um, the, if you look at the international um, surveys of financial centers, uh, of which there are now quite a few, and indeed the World Economic Forum uh, is working on a more sophisticated uh, index of uh, financial centers which they plan to launch at the Davos meeting at the end of January. Then if you look at the, what people say, they say essentially that the two top factors are nearly always the availability of skilled staff and uh, the sophistication and even-handedness of the regulatory system are usually factors one and two. Factor one, of course, is a somewhat circular argument because the reason you have skilled financial staff in this place is because there are jobs for them, and the reason there are jobs for them is because there are people. I mean, they tend to, tend to go rather together. So in some ways, the regulatory one is probably the most important. The key there uh, is... Um, if you break that answer down, you find that what people are after is regulatory certainty, um, 
regulatory flexibility and regulatory even-handedness um, and also um, the ability to, as it were, enforce regulations yourself, in other words, a court system. If you look at those, um, then, then China still has a problem um, in all of them uh, because, well, the regulatory certainty, uh, I mean, the regulatory system has been changing very, very rapidly. It needs probably to stabilize. I don't think where they are is a bad place, but it's, it's very recently that they've reached it. Um, the regulatory flexibility is quite little because flexibility requires rather sophisticated regulatory staff who are able to make judgments in interacting with firms. And that's probably not really present except right at the top level of these institutions. Um, Even-handedness really depends on um, you know, a much more open and competitive environment. And on the Paulson agenda, there's quite, they're quite a long way from that in terms of what foreign institutions can and can't do. And there also remain issues um, about the legal system and the access of foreigners to the legal system to enforce contracts, uh, which is something Chinese will acknowledge, but which is still uh, a problem. So on these sort of boxes, there's still quite a long way from being in a position where um, Shanghai is really a global financial center. Now, if they can make progress on all of these, uh, then there's no reason why uh, they shouldn't um, achieve that. And uh, I think that's what keeps people in Hong Kong and Singapore awake at nights um, because they worry that the Chinese might eventually uh, get this right. Uh, but for the moment, I think, Shanghai is quite a long way away. I mean, it's not a long way away in sort of the banking market, but it is in asset management. Uh, because these legal issues are more nervous, make, make people more nervous in terms of asset management. And so you can see that Singapore has positioned itself as the asset management center for the region. And at the moment, I think that position is quite well established. So they could do, but it will require quite a lot of changes of the sorts that uh, I've listed. Do you mind if we have three questions? Okay, and then proceed. Just to, just to, we're, we're going to run out of time. I'd just like to take three final questions together. Well, I've already got the people in my brain. Up at the top there. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, in the recent couple of years, China has been kind of accused, especially by the United States, for not doing what China has promised when entering the WTO. As you mentioned, something like allowing more foreign firms going to China and opening more of its financial markets. What do you think are the biggest challenges for China in terms of this? And what do you think is the best uh, strategy for China to have a better uh, image or have a more responsible role in terms of the world economy. Thank you. Okay. And could we have the question down here, please? Thank you. Get your exercise. Thank you. A lot of fund managers have put their money into Hang Seng, expecting China to allow domestic Chinese investors to invest there. Suddenly, recently, though, China has actually just suspended this policy. Do you expect China to follow through and allow Chinese investors to invest there? And, and a final question here, please. Sorry. Hmm. Hello, mine is a very macro one, general one. I'd just like to, uh, could you please point out some similarities and differences in terms of capital market development between China and other BRIC countries, which have been Brazil, Russia, Brazil, Russia or India? If there are some common trends. So, thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, well, let me try to be quite brief on these. Um, 
On the WTO, I think that um, China has met the letter of its WTO uh, commitments, um, but perhaps not hugely enthusiastically. Um, and therefore, uh, in fact, foreign banks you know, have been allowed in, as they said they would do, um, but have been allowed in rather slowly. And it's rather inflexible process of developing new branches, etc. So, yes, they've been allowed in, but they've only been allowed to open one branch here and one branch there, and it takes quite a lot of time to get permission, etc. Um, I think that process probably ought to speed up. Um, and also the process of allowing investment in securities firms has only just, uh, just in the last two or three weeks actually, the CSRC has announced that it's prepared to receive applications for ownership of Chinese uh, investment in Chinese securities firms. Um, and on asset management, um, I think there is still quite a bit further to go. So I think asset management is the area which I, I think they're probably weakest on. As far as the Hang Seng is concerned, well, I would expect um, – I, I don't when, – when I discuss with the Chinese authorities whether they believe that Chinese domestic investors should be allowed more access to foreign assets, they never say no to that question. They always say yes, they do agree that in principle. And then there's a little bit of a sort of two steps forward and one step back uh, goes on. Um, so uh, not unknown in other places, I have to say. Um, so the answer to your question is yes. Um, the last one, uh, I don't know much about Brazil and Russia, to be completely frank with you. Um, I did make some comparisons with India. Uh, I think that um, India has managed to sustain, even through the years of Nehru policy and the Hindu rate of growth and all of that, it did manage to sustain quite a lively uh, private equity culture. Um, and that has stood it in good stead recently. I mean, there is a sort of buying and selling and a market culture in Mumbai, which is quite um, appreciably better developed than, than it still is in Shanghai. And I think that's been one of India's um, sort of shock absorbers in the system. I mean, they've had a pretty racy stock market, but it has been pretty vital and vibrant kind of market, uh, more so, I think, than the Chinese one. And that's because they sort of always somehow uh, preserved it. Um, if, I don't know if you've been to Mumbai, but if you go to the stock exchange, you know, in the street there are people selling you things, you know, selling you unit trusts and, um, I mean, on, on, literally on the on street corners. There's a kind of lively uh, trading market in Mumbai, which has persisted uh, even when the economy was, was quite uh, closed. So I think that Indians have an advantage there. Um, the Indian banks, however, I think are reforming not so rapidly as the Chinese banks. And India went through the process of nationalizing all the former British banks uh, in a way that was pretty disastrous, actually. And um, they're taking quite some time to roll that process back. Well, thank you very much for coming. Thank you to Howard. He's been giving us these regular updates on the Chinese economy, so we'll look forward to the next uh, installment, but we'll try to do it in a bigger theatre. <laughs> See you then.